Well, Father, we thank you for the privilege, the opportunity to be a part of your body, your church. We thank you that you have, in times past and eternity past, have, uh, Lord, chosen us to know you. And such a privilege and a blessing that we thank you for. And we pray now, Lord, as I open your word, that you would speak, Lord, through it, that you would bless, that you would bring us to apply it, that your spirit would be moving in our hearts to help us understand and, and to apply what we are learning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're back in Ephesians 1, so you can be uh, turning there right now. But in the meantime, I uh, just want to let you know about a noted columnist, Irma Bombeck. Uh, she's written much about the family, uh, often in a humorous way. Uh, she's the one who wrote that book, uh, uh, If Life is a Bowl of Cherries, Why Am I in the Pits, I think it is. Um, and she said many funny things. And as I was looking at some of those things this week, here's a few that I came across that I found, uh, found interesting. She said, I come from a family where gravy is considered a beverage. Uh, my dad would say amen to that. There's, his food often floats around in his plate from all the gravy he uses. She said, my theory on housework is if the item doesn't multiply, smell, catch fire, or block the refrigerator door, let it be. No one else cares. Why should you? Never lend your car to anyone to whom you've given birth. I've got three, uh, two kids that uh, have licenses, one that's on the way, and I, I affirm that one. Worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but never gets you anywhere. And one of my favorites was what she reportedly asked regarding her epitaph that would be written on her tombstone, which said, I told you I was sick. Well, being very funny, she also had uh, sober moments. Uh, there's one in particular a biography she wrote about her family where she shared about uh, her father's death. She said, one morning my father didn't get up and go to work. He went to the hospital and died the next day. I hadn't thought that much about him before. He was just someone who left and came home and seemed glad to see everyone at night. He opened the jar of pickles when no one else could. He was the only one in the house who wasn't afraid to go into the basement by himself. He cut himself saving, but shaving, but no one kissed it or got excited about it. It was understood when it rained, he got the car and brought it around to the door. When anyone was sick, he went out to get the prescription filled. He took lots of pictures, but he was never in them. Whenever I played house, the mother doll had a lot to do, but I never knew what to do with the daddy doll, so I had him say, I'm off to work now, and threw him under the bed. <laughs> the funeral was in our living room. A lot of people came and brought all kinds of good food and cakes. We never had so much company before. I went to my room and felt under the bed for the daddy doll. When I found him, I dusted him off and put him on the bed. He never did anything. I didn't know that his leaving would hurt so much. You know, her description of her father is, I think, indicative of what many believers today might say about their Heavenly Father. That, you know, they know that he provides for them. They know that uh, he cares about them. Uh, he's around when you need him. But they don't know much else about him or what to do with him. In fact, in studying God the Father this week, I was looking in various books and articles for specific things written about him. And I had trouble finding that many things. I found a lot in regards to the Son and the Spirit. But, but the Father received very little attention. And I asked Tim Adams last week, I said... Tim, how many hymns, uh, songs can you think of that are specifically directed to the Father? He kind of stood there a minute and 
He says, not that many. I found it very interesting. Thomas Smale, uh, an Anglican charismatic, wrote a book called The Forgotten Father. I haven't read the book, so I'm not necessarily recommending it. But I think in his title, he does accurately depict how little attention that God the Father receives. I think for many in our evangelical culture today, God the Father is somewhat of an enigma, relatively obscure and seems uninvolved at times to us, perhaps. But that was not so for the Apostle Paul. And as he opens his letter to the Ephesians, which is focused on the gospel and gospel living, the person of the Trinity that receives attention first and foremost is indeed God the Father. And as I read through verses 3 to 14, I want you to notice just how prominent a role God the Father plays within our lives, particularly within our salvation. I'll be beginning in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intent to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will." to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. So as Paul opens this letter, a letter focused on the gospel, a letter focused on how we should respond to the gospel, as we talked about before, his, his focus here is on the Trinity. It's on the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One being, but three persons. And His role within our salvation. And He does that, I believe, to focus the attention on the fact that God in His very nature is a relational God. And that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are invited in to that relationship. And then Paul gives here, as he's pondering these things, as he's reflecting on these truths about what God has done, he can't stop himself. He continues on with word after word, 202 words in the Greek straight before a period. Running out of breath, if you will. His intention here was not merely to give us a doctrinal statement about God, but to focus our attention on praising God himself. In fact, using poetic prose... Poetic prose, say that ten times fast. Poetic prose, Paul tells us here the doxology of praise. Praise directed to God the Father. And skillfully he writes about our triune God and all that he has done in our salvation. And again, that theme is praise. He begins it all with praise in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father. And then three different times throughout this doxology, he repeats to the praise of his glory. And notice where Paul begins this doxology. Notice what his focus is on initially. Notice which person of the Trinity receives first attention. It is God the Father. God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we too this morning will direct our praise to the Father. We'll focus particularly on verses 3 to 6 to see not only who the Father is and praise Him for that, but also praise Him for what He has done. And remember, God the Father is not a part of God. He's not one-third God. He's not one manifestation of God. He is not... uh, simply a part of the whole, but God the Father is fully God, just as the Son is fully God, just as the Spirit is fully God. They all have the same essence. They are all omniscient, all eternal, all infinite, all sovereign, and all holy. But what distinguishes them is their personhood, their relationship to one another, and their relationship and role with us. And we see who the Father is at the very beginning of verse 3, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul clearly says here that the Father is indeed God. In fact, that phrase, God the Father, or God and Father, is repeated 29 different times in the New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, God's description as Father is not as prominent and is typically used in relationship to His relation with Israel as the Father of Israel. But there are a couple of passages where He is mentioned to be the Father of an individual. In both of those cases, in Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 89-26, it is in relationship to the Messiah. But then the angel announced to Mary when she wondered who that would be within her womb in Luke one thirty five, the relationship between the Trinity with Father and Son is made fully clear and fully announced that that one who would be born to her would be the Son of the Most High God. And then Jesus, in His ministry, He freely referred to God as His Father. In fact, even as a young man at the age of 12 in the temple, right? He said He was about His Father's business. In the Gospel of John alone, Jesus references God the Father as His Father over 120 times. He clearly understood that that God was not only God, but was His Father. God the Father also made it clear Himself, their relationship. You remember what He said at the baptism and at the transfiguration? Audibly, from heaven, This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We see, secondly, that He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, He is the God and Father of Christ. He is in the supreme position of authority within the Trinity. He's the first member of the Godhead, which doesn't mean that the Son or the Spirit are are less in value or importance or inferior to God. No, again, they are all fully God, but that their role is different. And the Father has the role of the supreme authority within the Trinity. Jesus often declared that He was of the same essence of the Father, in John 10.30, he said, I and the Father are one. In John 14.10, he told Thomas, He who has seen me has seen the Father. But at the same time, while recognizing and affirming that Jesus, the Son, and God, the Father, were the same in essence, he also recognized that he was subordinate to, he submitted to the Father. In John 5 or 6, verse 38, he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We see that play out in the garden, right? Remember, as Jesus was praying to the Father, He said what to the Father? Not my will, but yours be done. And in Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, right? As He said to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, Jesus saw the Father's will as supreme. And again, this doesn't say that He is any less God at all. Just as in marriage, there are different roles, right? So it is with the Trinity. 
The Father being the supreme authority and the Son and Spirit willingly submitting to that authority. And and just as in marriage, there's no difference in value or equality or importance between a husband and wife, right? But there are different roles. God has ordained the husband to be the authority in the home. We also see the Father's authority in that He is the one who was sent. Jesus was sent by the Father in John 5.38. Also in John 14, 16, we see it is the Father who sent the Son, or excuse me, sent the Spirit. I'm getting distracted by this screen over here, flashing back. Is it doing it behind me? Okay. Satan keeps in, invading us. He did the lights a few weeks ago. Now he's working on the screen. We're going to keep going. Philippians 2, 9 says that it is the Father who exalts the Son, so that all every knee would bow and worship and declare Him as Lord. Jesus' subordination was not only on earth either. In 1 Corinthians 15, a wonderful chapter that focuses itself on the resurrection, Paul there discusses and articulates and instructs us as to the goal of history. He says in verse 28 of chapter 15, When all things are subjected to Him, that is the Son, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. See, this passage declares in the verses before it that Jesus Christ will defeat all of God's enemies. He will subdue all of the wicked. He will subdue every enemy of God. And He will present a kingdom which has been subdued and where all rebellion has been stamped out. He will present that kingdom to the Father. And then it says the Son Himself will continue to subject Himself to the Father. And that is what is expressed here in Ephesians 1.3. In the phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, let me stress, this does not mean at all that Jesus is inferior to the Father. No, by all means, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit deserve our worship, deserve our allegiance, deserve our praise, and deserve our obedience. They are all God. But again, there are relationships, there are distinctions within the Trinity. In fact, in Ephesians 1.11... It says regarding the Father that He is the supreme authority and that He is the one who works all things after the counsel of His will. His grand design in creation, in sending His Son, in bringing about our salvation is that it has been the Father's plan from before time. So it is the Father, indeed, who rightly deserves our praise as Paul begins this great doxology And He deserves our praise for who He is, that He is God, and that He is the Father of our precious Lord Jesus Christ. And our Father also deserves praise for what He has done. And that's where we're going to spend a majority of our time this morning in looking at what He has done as Paul articulates it in these great verses. Let me go back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now these words here, brothers and sisters, are are sacred words. They present truths which the angels are marveling at as they observe God working them out within His creation. And it's my prayer as we walk through this text together that the Lord would help us to grasp even just a, a little more of what He has done in securing our salvation 
Because it will, it will induce us, it will move us to rightly praise him for what he has done. And we'll be like, like Paul who couldn't contain himself and went on and on and on as he reflected on these amazing truths about what God has done to save him. And it is that same God doing those exact same things to bring us to salvation. Verse 3 declares that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, the greatest of which is himself. That our triune God has blessed us with a relationship with Him. A relationship that doesn't make us equals, that doesn't make us uh, divine in, in any sense, but, but a relationship and we can be sons and daughters before Him. And verse 4 begins with just as, making that connection. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And now Paul will begin to articulate the particulars of that blessing. And the first thing that he says, which is the foundation of all that follows, he says, just as He chose us in him it's the father's choosing that is the foundation and in verses four to six we're given three reasons to direct our praise to the father for the work that he's done in choosing us we praise him that he chose believers for salvation that he chose believers for sinlessness and thirdly that he chose us for sonship God chose us, just as He chose us in Him. And I, I spent a lot of time looking at this word this week and studying it, and, and all the study and all the information and, and data and lexicons and everything else. You know what I came up with? This word means, are you ready? To select something for yourself. To choose. To pick out. Just like perhaps when you're at the store and, and uh, selecting a type of cereal that you want. You pick it out. You choose it. Unless your kids are with you, I guess. Um, and though the meaning of the word is straightforward, that God chose, its implications are far-reaching. They are profound and, in fact, have been debated by many over the centuries. But this isn't the only time that God's word said that he chose us in salvation. Colossians 3.12 says, So that as those who have been chosen of God... Holy and beloved. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.4 said, We give thanks to God, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Second Thessalonians 2.13 says, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. You see, these verses and several others declare that our salvation isn't based on us, but on God's sovereign choice. Something theologians call election. If you're a believer this morning, it is because God has chosen you by His grace. And Paul makes this statement. He doesn't stop here. He doesn't simply say, just as He chose us in Him. But if you look throughout the paragraph, word after word, phrase after phrase, uh, doctrine after doctrine, statement after statement, Paul focuses attention on God the Father's action within our lives in regards to our salvation. Look again with me as we go through this here. In verse 3 it says, The Father has blessed us. With every spiritual blessing. Again in verse 4. He chose us in Christ. He selected. He singled. He picked out. Verse 4. Or excuse me. Verse 5. He predestined us. That word there has the idea of to determine beforehand. To mark out beforehand. Verse 5. His choice was according to his will. That is it was God's desire and no one else's. In verse 6. He freely bestowed His grace on us. Now, what is grace, brothers and sisters? What is it? Unearned, undeserved gift, right? It's a gift that God gave. And He says the same thing again in verse 8. Again, He, the Father, that has lavished His grace upon us. 
Verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will. Verse 9 again, He made it known according to His kind intention, which He purposed. That word there, purpose, is to plan, to propose, to intend. Verse 10, He purposed, again, with a view to an administration. That word administration is a plan. God put the plan together. Again, in verse 11, He says, We have been predestined. Verse 11 Again, that predestination was according to his purpose. Different word here for purpose than he used in verse 9. This one has the idea of of resolve or will. It was according to God's resolve that he predestined us. In verse 11, he works all things after the counsel or the determination of his will. There's an emphasis here in God's role in our salvation. Paul over and over, phrase after phrase, tells of God's choosing, God's predestining. It was according to His will. It was by His design. It was His purpose. It was His plan. God did it. We didn't plan it out. We didn't predestine ourselves. We didn't exist before the foundation of the earth to make these decisions. It was God the Father who did. It was God the Father. Jesus declared this clearly in John 6. Turn there with me for a moment. I want us to see this. John 6, is the, it's the day after the feeding of the 5,000. The multitudes came back, and, and they came back, and Jesus points out most of them didn't believe in him, but they, they were coming back because they wanted another handout. The meal before was, was pretty good, so they thought they'd come back for more. And it's interesting in this text how Jesus describes the reason for their unbelief. We'll pick it up in verse 35 of John chapter 6. It says there, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. And notice here how Jesus, the reason he gives, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread of life that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. And notice the reason he gives for their grumbling. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That is to, to pull, to move, to attract. And I will raise him up on the last day. Skip down to verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and, it was, and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted from the Father. You see, for faith to happen, the Father must give it. For anyone to come to Christ, the Father must draw him. You remember the, the rich young ruler, right? You remember he came up to Jesus and asked, you know, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And they walked through some things and Jesus finally exposed the real idol in his life, which was his money, right? And he, he said to him, you know, sell everything you have and come follow me. 
then you'll have eternal life. And the disciples were there, and, and Jesus uh, said to them a statement that, that really shocked them. He said, it's easier for a, finish it for me, you know this one, come on, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter kingdom of God, right? Not bad. Okay, most of you remember that. Well, the disciples after that made an interesting remark. They said, well, then who can be saved? And I find it interesting because they didn't say, well, then how can the rich be saved? They said, who can be saved? You see, they got the point. Now, if a rich man, it was like a camel getting shoved through the eye of a needle. Well, I'm not as rich as this guy that came up to Jesus, but I'd probably be more on the level. Maybe I'm a dog trying to get shoved through the eye of a needle. Or, or for me to get to the kingdom of heaven, if, a, if I'm super poor, maybe a gopher or a mouse trying to shove that through the eye of a needle. But see, in every case, it's impossible, right? In every case, you can't shove any of those things through the eye of a needle. And the disciples got that. They realized, how could anybody be saved then? How could anyone come to know God? And thankfully, how did Jesus respond? He said, you're right, fellas. With man, it is impossible. But with God, anything's possible. And he was talking there about salvation. He's talking there about how to get into the kingdom. And he included all of us in that statement. Without God, it's impossible. None of us would come to him. We don't seek him, Romans 3.10 says. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. You might as well start working on shoving that camel through the eye of a needle before you get to heaven. The disciples got that, but praise God, he said, with God all things are possible. If that's not a clear declaration of God's sovereignty and election, I don't know what is. It is impossible for us to come to God apart from him. Joshua 24.2 shows us one of many examples in Scripture where they see this happening. Joshua 24.2 talks about Abraham. You know, Abraham was an idol-worshiping pagan. God called him out of that. God approached him. God gave a unilateral covenant with Abraham. Abraham wasn't seeking God. He was, he was just fine worshiping the false idols around him. Or you think of Paul. What was Paul doing on the Damascus Road? Was he going to a revival meeting? Was he seeking out a religious experience with Jesus Christ and he was on a journey of faith to come to know him? What was he doing there? He was going to Damascus so that he could find believers in Jesus Christ and persecute them, imprison them, and perhaps kill them. He wasn't seeking Jesus, but Jesus sought him. And he told him, Paul, I'm going to use you for my purposes now. You remember the paralytic? The guy that was lowered through the roof by his friends so that he could be healed? What was the thing Jesus said to him at first? Your sins are forgiven. Now, what is that? When we're forgiven our sins, what is that? Not a trick question. Salvation, right? Salvation. Right? And the Pharisees there were blown away. Only God can forgive sins. Well, that's right. Only God can forgive sins. You know what happened in that moment? Not only was that paralytic healed, Jesus Christ sovereignly saved him. He came in unable to walk. He left that room reborn. In Acts sixteen fourteen, you remember Lydia sitting by the water and hearing the Apostle Paul? And what did it say there about her? That the Lord opened up her heart so that she might understand 
the gospel that Paul was proclaiming to her. Acts 13, 48 is another statement of the, those who were saved in Pisidian Antioch as Paul was traveling his missionary journey, that they were appointed to eternal life. Many other statements are made, but if God did not choose, if, if he did not predestine, we wouldn't be saved. Romans 3.10, again, declares that no one seeks God. Ephesians 2.1 declares clearly that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And then just a few verses later, it says, that, but it is God who made us alive. And then a few verses after that, we know the passage, for by grace you have been saved. Work with me on this one. By grace you've been saved, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. Right? Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one can say, well, I'm glad I realized I was a sinner. I'm glad that I repented. I'm glad that I had faith enough to believe. Because it wasn't our deeds. It's not our insight. It's not our understanding. But it is God's grace. It is His gift. Because that passage there says the salvation and the faith are a gift of God. Not a result of works. God was the one who made us alive. But why? Why did he choose us? What criteria did he use? Were we just like the, was I a better brand of cereal than those around me? Was it because that God knew that I would believe one day and therefore he chose me based on that knowledge? Well, we're given the reason back in Ephesians 1 verse 5. So two words says according to. Those mean the, the basis, the standard, the criteria which God used says there, in love he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the kind intention of his will. You see, the, the criteria that God used to choose and predestine was his kind intention. It was solely based on the goodness of his heart. It was solely based on, on his desire, his decision. And it wasn't done because ahead of time he knew that, that we would believe and so he, he chose us based on that. It, it wasn't something that he saw in any one of us that was appealing. It was simply based on his own will. It was a plan that our Father delighted to make happen. It was a plan that he put together before creation. There's wonder and mystery in this. That God would take such care, such consideration, such forethought and planning on our own account, knowing, knowing that we would sin and rebel, knowing that we would turn away from Him, knowing that we would reject Him, knowing that we would kill and blaspheme His Son. And yet He carried out His plan. He did not waver. He did not retreat from it. I have to be honest with you. Before I came to Christ, I hated this doctrine. I remember when I was first introduced by it at church and a friend of mine who had recently gotten saved was explaining it to me on our way back from church. And I remember telling him to his face, he was driving, I was sitting in the passenger seat and I said, I could never believe in a God like that and never follow him. It just seemed to me unfair. It seemed like I was being treated as a puppet. And, and deep down, I felt like, isn't there something? I mean, I should have some credit for my salvation. There must be something I can, can be doing. I mean, isn't, am I not the one who is repenting? Am I not the one who is expressing faith? What about my free will? Don't I play any role? I mean, if I'm responsible for my sin, 
Am I not responsible in some way, even a small way, for my salvation? Well, let me ask you this. What if I chose one day to overdose on drugs, and as a result, I was left dying in the street? Paramedics show up. I'm in cardiac arrest, and they resuscitate me. They bring me back to life. I just have a question. Who was it that was responsible for my overdose? It's me. Who was responsible for my resuscitation? Someone else. You see, I I put my own life in peril, but I needed someone else to save it. And Paul didn't struggle with the tension here. He doesn't introduce a lot of things that, that address some of the questions that might pop up in our mind, and I know there are some. But see, Paul, as he's looking at God's sovereignty and our salvation, he doesn't wrestle between his sovereignty and and our responsibility. He simply declares it and he embraces it. He doesn't despise election. He cherishes it. He treasures it. And all he can do is he ponders and says, Praise you, God, that you chose me from before the foundation of the earth. I don't understand it. It doesn't make perfect sense to me. I know when I look at myself, I'm not much to look at. And yet in your kind intention and desire and your purpose and your plan you decided to save me you decided to save me and praise god that he didn't leave us in our sins praise him that he didn't allow us to continue on the path that we were on our heart hardened not seeking for him no he sought us out you know without god rescuing me without him choosing me i'm doomed I'm doomed. I'm dead in my sins. And it isn't so much God's choosing that blows me away. It's that he's stuck with his choice. You got that one, right? You're laughing at yourself, not me, right? He's stuck with his choice. And that leads us to the the second reason to praise the Father for his choosing, that he chose us for sinlessness. And we see that in verse 4, where it says there, the word that, or in some of your translations, to be. It says that just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the uh, world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is the purpose. That is the reason. We've talked about that word holy before, right? Paul referred to the the Ephesians as those who were holy ones or saints in verse 2. That the idea behind the word is primarily to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be used in service for God. And, and as such, that, that, that whatever is consecrated needs to be pure, without blemish. And to emphasize that point, Paul adds the word here, blameless, which means that without stain or defect or blemish. In the Old Testament, those two words were used to describe the, the kind of sacrifice that was to be offered to God. An animal without defect, without blemish. God was not to be given what was cheap, what was defective. And God chose us so that we would be without defects, so that we would be without moral faults, so that we would be righteous, so that we would be holy, we would be without sin, that we would be useful for Him. And again, God did not choose anyone because they were holy, but that they might be holy. Wonderful passage in Ephesians 5.27, which speaks of Christ giving himself up for the church so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, this holiness that he's speaking here of is a, 
as a positional holiness. That means that God, as he applies the blood of Christ to us, sees us now as, as holy before him. And that one day in eternity, we will experience that fully and completely and be holy. There's another kind of holiness called practical holiness, which is the working that, of that out in this life. But I think Paul's focusing primarily here on our positional holiness with the words there before him, giving us that idea and that future glorification as we stand before God, we will be without sin, we will be without shame, we will be without guilt, we will be without any reason, any stain, any reason to feel that guilt. I mean, think about that day. Think about standing before God and because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you're not looking at the floor. But that you can stand before Him without sin, without impurity, without shame. Can you imagine that? Think about that a minute. What will that be like? How will it be not to have a sinful thought, not to have a fleshly desire, not to have for the ten billionth time going to confess that sin to God, but we can stand before Him clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I don't think we think about that enough. It makes me want to say, come Lord Jesus. Now does that mean, that, you know, if He's speaking of a positional holiness here, that someday we'll be perfectly holy and God sees us that way now, does that mean it doesn't matter what I do now? Not at all. If I really understand positional holiness, it will drive me to practical holiness. It will drive me to doing what's right, to obeying the Lord now. Knowing that God's purpose for me is to be holy and blameless. Knowing that that is how He sees me now. Knowing that that is what Christ sacrificed Himself for. Knowing that is why He chose me. That should compel me to want to be holy now. In fact, that's clear in in Colossians 3.12, where Paul says there, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You see, if I am God's child, then I, if I am chosen, then I, I will flee sin. I will do everything I can to run away from it and run toward righteousness. But if you're not in this pursuit, if you're not one who is pursuing holiness now, Hebrews 12, 14 has a warning for you. It says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. J.C. Ryle, in reflecting on this passage, said in his book, Holiness, Sanctification or holiness is the sure mark of God's election. The names and number of the elect are a secret thing, no doubt, which God has wisely kept in his own power and not revealed to a man. It is not given to us in this world to study the pages of the book of life and see if our names are there. But if there is one thing clearly and plainly laid down about election, it is this, that elect men and women may be known and distinguished by holy lives. The presence of good works in your life is no guarantee of your salvation. But the absence of them means you're likely not. Do you have a desire to be godly? Do you strive toward that godliness? Does sin bother you? And when you sin, do you confess it? Do you go before God and ask Him to forgive you and then take steps to change? And then when you sin again, do you go to God again and confess it? 
take steps to change, pleading with God to, to change you, to help you, to move you, to, to show you how you may be pleasing and holy before Him? Is there any pattern of gross sin in your life that you're giving no attention to or, or doesn't bother you? Well, if that's the case, then, then you need to carefully heed God's warning here. You need to ask God to, to help you. Lord, to help me have a desire to run from this. Help me to understand what you have done for me by the blood of your Son. Lord, grant me, me repentance. Help me to have faith in you. Help me to, to turn away from that sin and to follow you. God, give me a desire to hate what you hate and love what you love. That is a prayer according to God's will. The Father chose us to be holy. And that is where salvation is aimed. You realize that it's, it's not aimed at, at a ticket to heaven, right? It's not aimed at receiving blessings and, and glory. It's aimed at being holy so we can stand before God. It's aimed so that we could be blameless, so that when we do stand before Him, there's no shame, that He would allow us to be there and welcome us even. Because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You see, if that's where God's aiming our salvation to, if that's the purpose of it, then of course we would have a desire to pursue that now, would we not? If that's where I'm going to end up, isn't that what I'd be seeking now? And yes, we do fall short. That's why, thankfully, God has provided for us the, 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 the understanding that we just continually go back to Him and confess, and then our relationship is restored. Our salvation isn't lost, but that, that relationship, that abiding, can be restored when we confess our sins. We praise the Father for choosing us for salvation. We praise Him for choosing us for sinlessness. And thirdly, Paul notes here, we praise Him for choosing us for sonship. We see that in verse 5. Verse 5 says, In love He predestined us to adoption as sons. You see, we're brought into that special relationship within the Trinity. We're we're allowed to have fellowship with the triune God. and, And that fellowship is as sons and daughters of the Father. Before time began, we weren't just chosen to escape destruction, but we were chosen for adoption. We were chosen for adoption. And that word adoption here only occurs five times in the New Testament. It's used by Paul in every case. And it's speaking here not of a, a Jewish idea of adoption. In fact, there wasn't any such thing in Jewish law. But, but the Romans had a provision for adoption. And that process was essentially you would buy uh, a son. You would usually buy a son either out of slavery or from another family so that he would be come into your family and be given all the legal rights and responsibilities and privileges of being in your family just as a natural-born son. The Romans often did that if they had no children so that their family name, so that their wealth, their inheritance could be carried on. You remember Ben-Hur, right? That happened to him. Actually, the most famous uh, Roman adoption was that of Gaius Octavius Thurinius, who was adopted by Julius Caesar and then later became Caesar Augustus. Paul also alludes to this Roman practice of adoption in Galatians 4, starting in verse 4 when he says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem, purchase, buy back those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And then he adds this wonderful statement, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba. 
You remember the Lord's Prayer, right? Or the disciples' prayer. Remember how Jesus taught us to address God? He could have said, right, God, or, or my God, or, or Yahweh, or he, he could have said Master, or Lord, or Most High, or Sovereign God. But how is it that he called us to address God? Our Father. Our Father. Something that would have startled many of his hearers at the time, because they were only used to seeing God as a father of the nation, not as, as a, a father of me, not as an individual, as a person. I think Jesus was encouraging us to recognize and invite us into that personal relationship. You know, adoption is, is such a wonderful picture, isn't it? Of, of someone choosing a person who is in a hopeless or desperate situation and choosing to show them love, choosing to include them in your home and choosing to treat them as your own son or daughter. I know some of you have adopted or in, are, in, are in that process of adoption. I know some of you are adopted. In fact, my wife was adopted as an infant and I loved hearing. I loved to hear my mother-in-law tell all that story when they saw my wife, and, and she was in the crib there, and they looked at her, and they, they saw this cute little nose and these little cheeks, and they just knew at that moment this was hers, that that she was theirs. Which is funny because I felt the same way when I saw her. <laughs> but you know, when when God adopted us, we weren't cute little infants with the cute little nose and the cheeks that you just want to squeeze. We were rebellious, sinful, wicked, ugly. We wanted nothing to do with God. Yet God did not waver in His choice. He didn't change His mind. You know, He, he didn't say, Nigel, oh, Nigel, I, oh, I guess I, I've got to, I can't change my mind now. I've got to take Him, but oh, man. Sorry, you show up here, you get picked on, Nigel. Right? God didn't say, oh, no, there he is. Yep, he's in my book, but... No, that's not it at all. With joy, with kind intention, with love, he adopted. You know, in a Roman system, most of the adoptions were devoid of affection or relationship. They were simply, as I said before, a, a legal right in order to carry on the family name. But in God's case, he, he does more than just bestow on us the legal rights as his adopted sons and daughters. But he actually causes rebirth in us so that, that we have his nature, so that we are reborn as his children. John 1, 12 and 13 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, listen, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And and John later relishes in that fact as he says in 1 John 3, 1, Beloved, or excuse me, Behold, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. It's amazing to think about that. And Paul notes that here in verse 5. He says, In love. We've been predestined. Now, some of your translations may tack on in love to the statement before it that we should be holy and blameless in love. But I, I don't take it that way. I don't see it that way. I follow the New American Standard translation because if it were attached to be holy and blameless, that would draw attention to the activity of, of our holiness and our blamelessness before God and that we're practicing that in love. But I, I think the focus here, as in the whole paragraph, is on what God has done for us. 
I think it makes more sense to see, no, this is God's love for us as he predestined us to adoption. The predominant focus here is God's actions towards us. And that little phrase, those two little words in love, say so much, don't they? They may be small in in length, but they are huge in implication. Again, because Roman adoption was a business transaction, but in God's case, our adoption is one of family. It's in love. It's in the context of a relationship. And we see that again, the personal nature of that in verse 5, when he says, our adoption is according to the kind intention of his will. That means the, the, the good pleasure, the, the kind disposition, the benevolent attitude. It's, it's the picture not of an overbearing king or an architect who's come up with this plan and he's, he's got to stick with it, and, and even though there may be parts of it that he's not so happy about. But no, it presents the picture of a, of a smiling father who's pleased with his decision. Look again in verse 5. There's another short little phrase that Paul tacks on. In love, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. And then he says, to or for himself. I think the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to add these words just to drive the point home. That God has chosen us for him. That it's personal. It's a relationship. We would be his own children for himself. We see that in several other passages. Again, Colossians 3.12, which said, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Jude 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father. And Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And as we approach our Father as a beloved child, I love what Romans 8.15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Remember, God bought us out of that. But you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, dear Father. I know some here may be struggling with this, that it's hard to see God in that way as a personal father. Maybe you're uncomfortable. Maybe it's not very reassuring. You know, the son, he's approachable. He, he died for my sins. He came and became a man and lived among us. He's approachable. The spirit, he works within my heart and my life, within the body, and, and he helps me to, to, to grow in the Lord. He's approachable. But the father? Maybe you've had an earthly father. You've seen earthly fathers who've given you a negative image of what a father is. Maybe the idea of an all-powerful, holy, just, heavenly Father is frightening to you, not encouraging. You know you're supposed to love God. You know that you're His child, but you keep Him at arm's length. To, to think about, you know, what we were just sing, singing about, to draw near, draw me near to your side. Maybe for some of you, that, that, that's not a comforting statement. You could never be close to your earthly Father, so how could you let God the Father be close? Maybe some of you have had or have a dad who's a harsh disciplinarian or, or abusive or distant or an alcoholic or uncaring or cruel or unfaithful or unloving. Maybe for some of you, your father was more interested in his career or his hobbies than in you. But brothers and sisters, that's not God the Father. That's not Him at all. Don't let your earthly father, who is a man, who is a sinner, who is not perfect... 
Don't let him be your standard of what a father is like. It's the other way around. God the Father is the standard by which fathers are to follow. You know, maybe your earthly father never told you that he loved you. But your, your heavenly father has inscribed his love in the palms of his dear son. Maybe your dad never showed you kindness or compassion. But God the Father does so every day. Maybe your dad never hugged you. Maybe he never showed you affection. But that's what makes that picture of the prodigal son's father so wonderful and that he ran to the son and embraced him. Maybe your earthly father would discipline you in anger or selfishness. But your heavenly father disciplines you so that you would yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Maybe your dad never showed much interest in you at all. But you know what? Your heavenly father has the very hairs of your head numbered. Maybe your earthly father abandoned you. But your heavenly father will never do that. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, it didn't really hit me of God as my loving father until I became a father myself. And when it struck me, I was sitting in a church listening to a sermon and uh, Luke 11, 11 through 13 was being read. And that is where a passage of Jesus was teaching on prayer, prayer to the father. And this is what he said. Now, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, I had read and heard this passage many times before, but when I heard it during that sermon, just not long after the entrance of my first little girl into my life, that's when it hit me. Because right? I, I loved that child. I would do anything for that child. I still do anything for that child. Sacrifice for all of my children. I love them deeply. And Jesus is saying, he knows that. He understands that. And he said, God loves you that much more. If you, being a sinner and imperfect, have this kind of love for your own child and you would do anything for that child, how much more would God not do for you? In fact, even giving you his spirit for any who would ask. He would readily save. He would readily bring salvation to any who would ask. God loves us so much. You know, our love is is finite and at times conditional. But God's love is infinite and it's unconditional. Right? His love is deeper than the Grand Canyon. It's, It's higher than Mount Everest. It's broader than the Rocky Mountains. And it lasts forever. Spurgeon said this, When the Divine Father is viewed aright, He becomes the object of our gratitude, not of our dread. Instead of trembling before Him as an austere judge, we rejoice in Him as a tender Father. He's no more to us the Thunderer of Sinai, but the Father of our spirits. Among the ignorant, it is too much the custom to ascribe every mercy to the Lord Jesus Christ and to think that He is all kindness and gentleness, while the Father is full of stern justice and severity. But it is not so. God is love. And that love dwells equally in each of the sacred three. You know, when I was a boy about three or four years old, uh, my parents had just divorced, and I wasn't living with my dad. I still remember one day so vividly. I was in an apartment. I was sitting 
um, in the living room looking out the front window. I was hoping with all my might that my father would come and visit me that day. And I would kind of get up, pace around. If I heard any little noise, I'd, I'd go to the door thinking it might be him. Now, I had no rational reason to think that because he hadn't told me he was coming. My mom hadn't said anything about it. But nonetheless, I was just hoping that my dad would show up that day, that he would come and see me. I was this little boy that missed him, and I desperately wanted to spend time with him. And that day is firmly etched in my mind because after all of that pacing and hoping, a knock at the door. And I opened it, it was my dad. He was there to see me. And I still remember just how much that meant to me, seeing my father there. I wasn't dreading the entrance of of some harsh authority, but I was waiting eagerly for with excitement to see a daddy who loved me. And that's what awaits you. Praise our father who chose us to be his children to the praise of the glory of his grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you have done so much, everything for us, that we would come to know you, that we would be holy and blameless before you, that we would be your adopted sons and daughters. And Father, thank you, praise you for your grand plan. And we don't understand it all, Lord. We have questions. Lord, uh, this whole doctrine of election is... Has, has many things that, that just are beyond our understanding or a mystery. But I pray, Lord, that, God, our focus would be on your great kindness toward us and that we would be energized to not only live for you, but to proclaim you to a world that is lost, that needs to hear the gospel. Father, may we, Lord, if we're struggling to have you near to us, if perhaps maybe we don't know you at all, I pray, God, that now in these moments that you would... Open the hearts of any who are not your child, just as you did Lydia's, that you would invade their hearts and minds and and help them to understand, to have conviction for their sin, to desire to place their trust in you, and to have you as their heavenly Father who loves them and sent his Son to die so that they might live. I pray, God, that you would bring that work about now by the power of your Spirit. And may we now... Give our praise and offering to you in gratitude for what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, his precious name we pray. Amen.